Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features J.J. Larson, MSLPC. JJ is the president of HECMA, which is the Higher Education Case Managers Association. JJ is also a founding member of HECMA, and she earned her BS in psychology from the College of Charleston and her MS in counseling psychology from Northeastern University. She's both a licensed counselor and a certified addictions specialist. Her full-time position is as the Associate Director of Student Services for Health and Well-Being at Richland College, which is part of the Dallas County Community College District. JJ has extensive community behavioral health experience involving work in the fields of addictions, developmental and intellectual disabilities, and correctional mental health. Her post-secondary experience includes residence life, counseling centers, substance use prevention and intervention, case management, and behavior intervention teams. The populations she has served in combination with work on grants, strategic planning teams, designing new clinical care programs, and establishing best practice services fits well into her work leading the HECMA community. Just a quick note for the sound quality of this episode, it's going to be a little bit tinnier than you might be used to from previous episodes. This was recorded live outside at a restaurant uh, in Denver, Colorado during the HECMA annual roundtable. So you might actually hear some glasses clinking. And I think at one point you can hear a server come up and ask us if we want anything else. So I apologize for any background noise and appreciate you bearing with the sound quality. But this is a very rich conversation about one of our key partners in student conduct. So I hope you'll stick with us. Welcome to the podcast, JJ Larson. JJ is the current president of HECMA, which is the Higher Education Case Management Association. And she's also, oh, did I say that wrong? Yes. Oh, can you say it correctly for me? It's Higher Education Case Managers Association. Oh, so close. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Um, But in her full-time role, JJ also serves as the Associate Director for Student Services for Health and Wellbeing at Richland College of the Dallas County Community College District. So welcome, JJ. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I am so excited to be here with you. We are at the 2017 HECMA Roundtable, and this is the largest number of attendees you've ever had, right? So this is our ninth annual, and the first one started with 25 people at Virginia Tech, and we are now at 225 people here in Denver. That is amazing and so exciting. I've gotten to meet people from all over the country, and it seems like everyone's really excited to be learning this week. Yes, and while we've been here, since we had some members and non-members uh, present at our conference, we have just crossed over our 500th member while we've been here. So we're very excited about that. That's a huge threshold. That's amazing. Well, I'm so excited to talk with you about case management and kind of how you got into case management and, the, and its intersection with student conduct. I think for our conduct listeners, I presented a session with the case managers yesterday about what case managers should know about conduct. And I think our conduct officers would be really excited to know what case managers wish we knew about you all. So. For sure, for sure. Um, but why don't we start with how you got into case management and how you ended up the president of HECMA? <laughs> well, um, so my journey in higher ed started in graduate school. I was um, a graduate assistant housing person and then moved into a, a full hall director role, and that was at Northeastern University in Boston way a long time ago. 
Um, and that was great. And But my degree was studying counseling psychology. And so my goal was to do addictions work and substance abuse. And so after grad school, that's what I did. And I ended up doing public uh, behavioral health care treatment for a long while and then ended up with this great opportunity to go back to my alma mater, the College of Charleston, as the alcohol and drug counselor in the counseling center. And so from there, I got bit back by the higher ed bug <laughs> and have been in and out of higher ed whenever I can um, as I've moved around the country. So I've had the opportunity to um, be alcohol and drug counselor and I've done that at a couple of different institutions. And uh, then we, I moved to Tampa with my family and I was doing quality assurance and working for a manage ent managing entity group, going into drug treatment centers and evaluating their contracts and utilization review, and that's just not where I wanted to be. <laughs> I kept thinking, as I would read the charts, I would be like, oh, I would have done this differently with this client, or I would have helped them do this. And I'm like, wait, if I'm looking at it as a case person, I need to be working with people, not paper. And the opportunity to work with USF's um, behavior intervention team came up, and so I interviewed, and off I was in University of South Florida. I didn't really know what uh, case management and behavior intervention team was beyond what I had researched a little bit, and um, I loved it. It was a perfect marriage of sort of that direct kind of talking to someone about what's going on and using compassion, but not having to have the responsibility of carrying the therapy with them. So that was a really good fit for me at that time. So I think case management is a growing profession in higher ed as demonstrated by HECMA growing like, you know, by 200 people in the last eight years. But how do you define case management? Because I think there's a lot of different interpretations. Right. So there is the idea of case management is we're all part of some sort of a team and um, we're going to manage that individual. Um, and maybe we have another hat that we also wear at the institution. But for this person, I'm going to kind of be their point person to help direct them around campus. And that's one way of viewing case management. Management. For higher ed case managers, and this has really evolved from those early meetings of our peers and then in, as we formalized into an association, the idea is that we're really looking at folks that provide that holistic care from in a post-secondary setting and that we're targeting folks that are at risk, they're struggling, they're in distress, or they've got other kinds of social service needs that if we can remove those barriers or assist with those challenges, <laughs> it will help them with their personal assistance in school and their academic goals, or even their personal and life goals, which may take them out of the academic setting. Yeah, I've seen presentations this week all across the board from food insecurity to how to assess case management to what is case management to, uh, you know, the differences between clinical and non-clinical case managers and things. So I have learned a whole lot um, about the profession that I wasn't aware of, and I've worked with case management and, and briefly was a case manager, but I think it was before HECMA had bloomed a bit, so it's really exciting to see the profession come together. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting you brought up clinical versus non-clinical. That's probably one of the biggest pieces that we are still trying to share with folks, right, is that we do look at higher ed case management as two distinct functional areas within the larger umbrella because there are folks that do case management and referrals and those kinds of coordinations inside a counseling center or a health center, and they may be providing sort of um, therapy groups around living with a chronic illness or uh, med management kinds of issues with someone who has behavioral health issues in a counseling center, or even doing ongoing check-ins and care and bridge care for those folks, as well as referrals, but they may not have a direct role on the behavior intervention team. Mm -hmm. And then you have folks that are in the non 
non-clinical counseling case manager role, and they may have more reach out to academics and what are the grades and what's the transcript and the student tells you that they have great grades but now you check and they're not so they're really looking at the whole student perspective whereas in the counseling center it might be really focused on what that student is defining as their issue and from a more voluntary perspective within the profession then um, of, of student conduct we have a kind of a similar separation of those who have grown up through the legal world with JDs and those who've grown up through student affairs or higher ed um, who have masters or PhDs and EDDs and um, we find a way to come together as one conduct family because we're all operating under the same function but from different lenses mm -hmm. I think from time to time so right. how do you see that reconciling with your clinical versus non-clinical folks here I think overall we look at ourselves as doing very much the same work it's some of the daily nitty-gritty or how we we, some of the levels of how we use our expertise because 24% uh, or so of our non-clinical case managers actually hold licensure they just don't work under licensure they're not hired to be a therapist or to be an LPC or social worker in that way but those skills come into play for working with their students that might be referred to them and then the clinical folks of course are practicing under license so the difference for us is understanding those nuances and what those limitations and barriers are about FERPA, about licensure confidentiality and how those play out in the work, and then how do those help us help our students or communicate with our dean of students and other folks that might have interest in what's going on with that student. It could be reporting out to the care team and those kinds of things. And I find that as we have grown, um, we've stated about 30% of our members have always been in that clinical functional area. Mm -hmm. And um, what I've seen in the last couple roundtables that we've done, we really are making a concerted effort to provide much more clinical content to create that balance because we don't want to feel like we're a non-clinical entity. We even changed our name about three years ago for that role. It was called Student Affairs Case Manager. Okay. But we've realized our counseling family members are also in student affairs. So we were discounting that their role was student affairs in that way. So we broadened the role and said, let's talk about what we do so that it helps us talk with our higher ups who don't understand case management in the first place. And they think that we're the therapists. And so we want to be able to delineate that, that we are or we don't have that role. So what would you describe kind of the philosophical underpinnings or kind of foundational pieces of the profession of case management? So I guess it goes back, we have three real core values that we kind of put out there. And one is that we really believe in sharing resources and sharing resources with our students, with our campus community and amongst ourselves as professionals. Case managers are typically one-off shops, so they're the only person on their campus doing this work that have these crises coming up at different levels, and they don't have a full team of folks behind them. And then it's also, they may feel like people don't really get them. And so by sharing resources amongst the HECMA colleagues, they really get that sense of um, care and compassion. Uh, the other piece is collaborative networking. We really talk about how can we form collaborative relationships across campus? Who are our uh, key stakeholders? Who can our partners be? How can we be creative with that? Who are our partners off campus? Because we can't just function within our own doors. We have to look at what's outside. Who are our mental health or emergency room or crisis intervention folks in the community that that marry into the work that we do to create um, care for the whole student. And then the other piece that we really look at is 
trying to advance best, best practice in our field and helping define our field and helping talk about what are some of the policies and administrative pieces that help our field work more effectively within the confines of the universities that we live or colleges. How do you find yourselves regulated? Um, in student conduct, we're always looking at case law and regulatory law and you know mandates that are coming down from the federal government and our state levels. Uh, what do you all look at in terms of your uh, compliance pieces? So in terms of compliance, we're really looking at um, we look at case law in terms of OCR and how that's affecting, especially under Title II, that tends to be where more of our stuff lives. Um, so we definitely be, we look at that. We also look at laws or issues that are coming up across uh, the country. Uh, we look at what are behavioral health practices in our, in our state, what are the regulations for that, and how do they play into some of the work we do for the students that we care for. And then we look at are there standards, maybe CAS standards, that apply to parts of our functional area. and um, HECMA was actually invited as the 43rd member of CAS last year in 2016. Congratulations. Thank you. So that was really huge for us. And um, some folks at USF were really phenomenal in helping us reach that goal. And now we are on a variety of committees looking at how case management plays out in several different functional areas like working with high-risk behaviors or working with student conduct or working with um, sexual violence and all those different areas that affect that's so exciting. Um, ASCA is also a cast partner, so we look forward to seeing you at the annual meetings. For sure. Um, the revision process is really fascinating. Uh, and there's something very special about helping to set standards for your profession, I think. Absolutely. One of the things that we've done is uh, we put forth our own uh, program review evaluation and guidelines. Yes. So we, uh, our quality assurance team, strategic planning group, spent a good year and a half really creating those and then vetting them and testing, road testing them through 14 schools of different sizes and different types to make sure the rubric was evidence-based. And so then that we've been teaching that to our members so that they can use that to kind of see, am I at least meeting this minimum of what I ought to be doing in my field? And so sort of developing those standards of care that are important for anybody uh, to know if you're doing it well. So I think case management and student conduct share a lot of traits in terms of maybe feeling isolated on our campuses or misunderstood by our colleagues, etc. Um, but I also think some of the same problems keep us up at night, potentially. So what are you, what are you hearing from your colleagues about what keeps them up at night? I think for many case managers, if they are overwhelmed, we were just looking at statistics this morning that the average of, a, of our annual 2017 search survey showed that the average is one case manager to about 7,500 students. Mm -hmm. However, in practice, if you have one case manager on your campus, it's up to 15,000 students to one case manager. And so that's a lot of potential referrals. And so I think there's always fear of slippage. What did, who did, who's going to fall in the gaps? Mm -hmm. So am I making sure that all the people that I have feelings about that are high risk or that we felt are we're concerned about we're taken care of? I think um, sometimes it's those students who are um, in some sort of behavioral health crisis. I think it's the students who struggle with how they interact with other people and how other people are interacting with them or responding to that. And so are we doing enough to make sure that they have the skills to navigate the college experience and that we're not uh, making some assumptions about what that experience is like for them and 
making sure that ignoring something that could be a risk factor. So I think, you know, I think about our keynote, um, Dr. Randazzo did our keynote at this conference, and she talked about it's not just about risk factors, it's what are the protective factors. And so making sure that as case managers, we look at that strength needs base of screening when we're working with our students so we can see what are the resiliency issues that they do have that are working well and what are the risks. And I think what keeps us up at night is, am I going to lose a student? I think that's the biggest fear of anybody. And then if we get a referral, does it feel like it's going to be above the fold or below the fold? What do you mean by that? So a newspaper, mm-hmm. right? right? In the old days, it used to fold. And if the news was really horrible, it was above the fold. Right. So you'd see it first. And if it was below the fold, it wasn't as it wasn't as prevalent. <laughs> sure. So uh, I've always worked from the idea of I don't want anything to be like first page. And even less, I want it to be above the fold. So how do you go about triaging cases? Because I, I remember seeing the statistics this morning. I believe it was over half of case managers feel like their caseloads are too high for their resources. So how do you triage? who gets time, attention, and services first. Right. I think that's the hardest part because when you're starting, you don't feel like you're doing enough as you're st- the first case manager at a place and you're, you've got some policies, you've got this form, you've got some snazzy brochures out there, and now you're waiting, right, mm-hmm. for referrals. Right. And so you start to say, oh, I'll just cast the net a little wider. And all of a sudden you've cast the net so wide, you're getting sniffling and you're getting sprained ankle and you're getting tearful. So you've picked up all these cases and now when you get um, belligerent, attitudinal, um, who may be having some sort of psychiatric distress, you've also got all these other people on your bell curve. And so part of what counselors have to struggle with is how to turn that back to where it came. And so part of it is coaching or teaching or working with our faculty and the folks that work with them and educational things on classroom management skills, um, being first responders of themselves, maybe taking QPR, Cognito, so they can have some referral conversations. You can refer them to the counseling center. They don't have to come here necessarily. But then also at the same time, not wanting to lose the idea of Sometimes a referral is the tip of the iceberg, uh-huh. and we don't want to lose what's underneath. Right. So balancing that out, and then using rubrics of a variety of kinds, and um, make sure that we are uh, following whatever that rubric is we've set up to measure our cases against. Okay. Um, so when you think about the rubrics, the tools of development for case management are still in progress and process, right? So there's many, many different ways to assess a case or to assign a level of risk to a case. Um, What are some of the tools that are out there right now? Some folks use um, Gene Dysinger's threat assessment, you know, risk assessment tool. Folks use, uh, I'm not going to get this right, there's some stuff that Reed Malloy has done. Um, There's some stuff that Nabita has done. Um, Folks have homegrown their rubric based on what their campus talks about in terms of, um, I guess a rubric really is looking at how intense should our concern be and, or how what our level of concern be should, for the, should be for the student and then how intense should our response be. So if I'm highly concerned, do I need to have an intense response within 24 hours? If I'm less concerned, can it wait a week? You know, or I can give that student some time to come to me, or do I need to reach out to them and pick them out of obscurity into my office? So those are the things that we're looking to guide. And so as we look at cases as they come in, we kind of look at an overview of where might they fall. And then when we meet, if, if it's part of a team process or a case management team process or a bit process, then we determine 
where those things fall and how we're referring in or out and what the action steps might be. So it hasn't really been standardized yet in the field, the protocols? No, it has not. There's not a standard way of approaching the cases, and I think that that's one of the things that we're working on as well through HECMA is to determine what are we all doing and how can we all sing from the same sheet of music, understanding that there are institutional differences, cultural differences, and pieces that play into our um, geographic areas and things as well. So if we can find some best practice pieces, that's what we're really looking for. And I think the guidelines and the rubric that we've set about how a, um, an office should operate, we've had put some things in there about BIT, we've put some things about how to manage cases, but I think we're still working on how to evaluate cases in a consistent way. One of the things that I've always been fascinated is in our rubrics and our student conduct policies and as I look at the, um, the different tools that HECMA is using, I see a very strong U.S. American and Western lens in terms of our evaluative processes. How do you account for culture differences in international students when you're trying to assign levels of risk? So I think that's one of the places where we, we partner with the offices that might have more expertise in that than we ourselves may have. And so in order to look at being culturally competent, it might be that we're making sure that our multicultural affairs office is helping us uh, look at that case differently, or that we're working with international services to understand that well, where the student comes from, this is what how they would interact with people, so this isn't necessarily a um, behavioral health issue, this is just an approach to life. And so making sure that as we evaluate cases, we take into account where that student is coming from and not just, oh, they didn't acclimate to the U.S., so that must be what's wrong. Because we can't expect that. We are a diverse global community where we're raising, we're raising, we're helping develop global citizens at our communities and at our institutions, so our system has to take that into account when we look at a case. And I think that's the beauty of the idea of collecting the dots and connecting the dots that we talked about um, that Jeff uh, Pollard talks about. Um, and so collecting the dots sometimes means collecting information about the international perspective or the cultural perspective that that student comes from as they approach life. It's time for the Public Policy and Legislative Issues Committee update. Hello again from the PPLI. It's time once again for a public policy legislative update on a topic that is timely and relevant for our ongoing conversation geared toward creating an informed student affairs profession. As always, we stipulate that it is our intention only to inform and not to take a formal stance on any political ideology or candidate. In light of the recent horrific tragedy in Las Vegas, we felt it prudent to revisit the critical topic area of weapons on our campuses. First, we need to acknowledge that what happened in Las Vegas is still under investigation, and we probably won't get a full understanding of the circumstances for some time. Second, we also need to acknowledge that the tragedy in Las Vegas is being utilized here only as a means by which we revisit the difficult topic area of weapons on campus. By no means are we aiming to suggest that those who carry weapons on college campuses are going to carry out such horrific crimes. Unfortunately, we in the United States are becoming all too familiar with the conversations that occur in the aftermath of such tragedy. Conversations around definitions of domestic terrorism, mental health, security, civil rights, and so on. Instead, we offer here a chance to engage in a conversation that impacts each of us as student affairs professionals and, with any luck, use the space to educate you, the listeners, on the current state of affairs and how you can be involved. Unfortunately, institutions of higher education are not immune to tragedies like Las Vegas, as our history shows us. 
The horrific events in Las Vegas occurred exactly two years ago to the day after a shooting in Umpqua Community College in Oregon that claimed 10 lives. Simply hearing the names of Virginia Tech, Columbine, and Newtown calls to memory feelings of despair and horror as we look back on the lives of students and educators so tragically lost. In the wake of dozens of shootings in the past several years, states across the country find themselves debating the merits of allowing students, faculty, and staff to carry firearms on their campuses. Just this year alone, the states of Arkansas and Georgia passed legislation to allow students and faculty to carry guns on campus. In 2015, Texas became the eighth state to allow concealed carry weapons on campuses. And while there are 16 states that ban carrying a concealed weapon on campus, there are 23 states total that leave the decision up to the institution. The debate on the federal level goes on, and we know that this is a challenging one. But the debate remains largely unchanged. On the one hand, gun enthusiasts vociferously defend their rights provided under the Constitution to bear arms and argue that the best defense against an armed assailant is an armed population that can defend others quickly and before law enforcement. Many others feel that the proliferation of weapons anywhere is a bad thing and only leads to tragedy, that weapons themselves aren't going to be part of the solution, and only when we remove them from our population will be truly safe. Recognizing that gun control is a sensitive and challenging topic for many individuals, one may hope that Congress will brainstorm and propose realistic legislations moving forward. We also want to encourage you to keep an eye on your state legislative efforts on this matter. Until then, we should engage in those difficult conversations with administrators to discuss the challenging topics that we may be faced with and understand that our institutional population and culture may come up with a decision that we have to work with and help our students understand. This is an important conversation and a challenging one, but again, one that we from the PPLI committee hope that we can help you navigate as you understand what your state legislature says, and if there is federal legislation that proposed, we can address that too. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening, and take care. Thank you so much, PPLI. And now back to our conversation. You're at a community college in your full-time job, so how does case management look different at a community college than a four-year, and particularly like open enrollment community colleges? Right. So I'm an open. I'm at an open access institution, which even means that students don't have to have a high school diploma to come to our campus, mm-hmm. um, which is certainly an interesting uh, way of being. I've never worked at a community college before. Our case management at this point is really looking at. Um, tracking those students and referring them to the appropriate offices on campus mm-hmm. and then making sure that they that there's some follow-up and releases and things in place. It's not as robust as I've seen at other campuses and, and it's still growing. I've been there six months. We're moving along, hoping to save some money for my own case manager to come on board. Um, what I've seen at other campuses is that they really have a robust system. Uh, Northern Virginia uh, Community College has a very robust um, Nova Cares Um, case management system that crosses all of their campuses and so if a student comes to one campus they're talked about from the same perspective no matter where the enter point is and then those case managers coordinate the care and the action steps and work with them if they need to go to the bid or the care team. 
One of the things that struck me about your data this morning was the demographics of who are serving as case managers right now. So if I recall correctly, it's like 89% of case managers are cisgendered women, and the vast majority of case managers also identify as white. How does that impact your work and your profession and the way that you're developing things and, and also serving students who may not look like that demographic? Right. So I think part of what happens is it's in behavioral health, we see that as well. It's majority cis, uh, cisgendered females, uh, often Caucasian females or identify as Caucasian or white females. And I think, so there's a piece of that that's about making sure that we're recruiting differently for the positions that we're trying to fill to be more reflective of our own uh, campus community and, and reflecting that diversity. So I think that that's um, sort of a recruitment and hiring challenge. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is as we as a profession, as HECMA, moves out and hire and um, elevates its profile, which has really been this past year for us on this journey, that we need to make sure that folks, that this career is accessible to a lot of individuals who may not define this as something that they would be interested in, mm-hmm. and to be able to share what this career could be, that it is a viable student affairs career. It's not taught in most higher ed programs at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been invited to lecture on this um, as part of a group of assistive partners at a higher ed course as a one-day thing, but I have, there's been very few cl- places where this is taught as one path could be this. One, you could be a conduct officer, you could be an academic advisor, you could be, oh, a case manager. So I don't think we're quite there yet, and I think that will help also bring in folks that are um, that perhaps more of reflective of the communities we serve. I like to joke that no one grows up saying I want to be a student conduct officer and I think maybe the same thing is true for case That's management. That's true because what happens is it feels like everything rolls downhill into your <laughs> pile and you're like wait wait I didn't sign up for that I want to help people and heal people and help people become better and sometimes those problem or situations that are more complex or more risk of you know people become risk averse and so that tends to be where the folks who are in crisis management, like, yes, I want that. The energy and excitement of having an exciting new day every day um, can almost be to the detriment in some ways, I think. One of my favorite things um, that I learned at the roundtable is the heckmates term, um, which I just think is so fun. Um, how did you kind of arrive at both roundtable and heckmates as kind of the identifiers of the spirit of your gatherings? So roundtable started uh, at Virginia Tech. Their first meeting of 25 folks was roundtable discussion. Amy Powell and Erica Woodley started a listserv group on Google Groups when they figured out that they were both case managers and there must be more of them than just the two of them. And they found one at University of Miami (laughs) who'd been there a little before them. And so it grew into this group. So the first roundtable was the 25 listserv members that had found their way to this group. And so they just decided they they had some targeted speech that they were going to do, some targeted knowledge, but they really just wanted to get together in a round and talk about what they did. So we have always married that idea of roundtable and tried to incorporate roundtable breakout just discussion sessions about what are the issues we face, how do the clinical or non-clinical folks in our different regions get together, and so we have always kept that as part of our annual conferences to never lose that piece of our roots. Heckmates actually comes from the Dean of Students at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. 
and he was um, joking around with our communications and marketing director Jennifer Hankel about oh is that another call with all your friends all your heck mates and so once she she heard that term she tweeted it out and we just grew uh, grabbed onto it and it has run we do not have such a great moniker for student conduct officers we kind of just say ASCAers and it's just definitely not as good as heck mates <laughs> so what would you want student conduct officers to know about the case management profession I think um, that we are at times as challenged as you are, just from a different place, mm -hmm. that we don't want to do your jobs. <laughs> we have enough <laughs> struggle doing our own sometimes. And I think sometimes when we talk about cases where there's overlap, it may come across like we're trying to tell you all how to do your work. And I think because we're passionate about the student we're serving, but I think we have to understand that you all have a different lens and a different path and a different process. And so some of it might be helping us learn your process. Many of our case managers did not grow up in student affairs. They don't come from a higher ed training background. So they don't necessarily understand the, the perspective of restorative justice and the educational model that really is student conduct as opposed to thinking, oh, this is just like judge, jury, and, and punitive. And so I think we can learn that and, and teach that individually, but those different entities on each campus need to have those kind of collaborative conversations. Mm -hmm. So I think knowing that in my perspective, most of our case managers are open to finding that parallel process. I had a great partner in conduct at one of my former institutions and we would definitely parallel cases. There were times when they knew they didn't have charges for someone, that it wasn't going to go that route, but maybe they had already made contact, so they would bring me in and we would collaterally work with that student, and then the handoff would happen and I'd take them down the rest of the path. And so knowing where those places are. And then the same thing would happen with us. We'd realize this is really not our thing. We need to make sure that this goes to conduct. Do you want to give a shout out to any particular conduct officer? Well, I love me some Maria Zale, so I have to tell you, I know she's a, a, a Garing uh, instructor as well. So. Definitely. Maria is very active in our association. We like her a lot. Yeah, so. for sure. Um, can you think of a time or um, of when case management went really well and a student kind of was really successful through your case management process and it kind of gave you that good, warm, fuzzy reminder of why you do your job? Yeah, um, I have had a student who um, had some significant challenges with uh, first psychotic break. Mm -hmm. And it was coming up in different places on campus and um, causing problems in his academic setting, not doing well in his music classes and different things like that, and we and some of the other courses that he had. So we would work with him on course, reduction, course reductions out of the classes that his mental health issues were a complete barrier to his success in those, and so we could redirect him into other classes. We were not able to maybe work with the student to get him enrolled in maybe as a therapist. I might think, hey, best course treatment might be for you to be have medication and get some therapy and do this, but that's not, I can't force anybody to do that. They have to find their own path, and people walk around every day with active mental health issues, and they function in their life to a point, to the point where they don't, you know? And so for this student, it was not about judging what his choices were. It was about supporting the choices he was able to make and help him to be as successful as he can. And he actually ended up graduating from our university and going on to graduate school and doing fairly well. I mean, maybe not as well if he'd had the different care that I felt might be helpful as a professional 
professional, but as his case manager, I was with him and his choices were the ones that led. And what we were also able to do was help navigate some of the barriers and challenges that he faced in other areas. He didn't want accommodations through our disability services office, but he did um, take the support when it was offered and come in when he had problems and he could see our office as a safe space. And so that was really what I consider a success. I think that's one of the goals for conduct for most of the time anyway, as well as care in terms of we just want folks to persist to graduation. And I think that um, that is sometimes lost in translation to colleagues outside of the two parts of the profession. Um, but we really do want our students to finish. That's right. That's right. So, JJ, what are you reading right now that you would recommend for other student affairs professionals or student conduct officers? It doesn't have to be related to case management. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to know the title, but I'm reading a book that my spouse picked up on one of his trips, for his business trips. He saw this book, and I was going through a particularly stressful time at, at work, uh, making my transition, and I manage several different departments now. And so he bought me a book called Life is Good. <laughs> and uh, so I'm reading that and kind of learning you know, it's self-care and reframing and all those things um, sort of uses cognitive behavioral therapy techniques about reframing thought. And as a therapist, I've done that, but I don't do it for myself. Um, so that's one of the things. And then my um, eye candy book, if I think of it that way, so it kind of goes in one eye and out the other, and I don't really have to retain or learn. I read um, anything by Dorothea Benton Frank. She's a writer that um, writes about the low country of South Carolina, where I went to school as an undergraduate. And so every time I read her books, I've got one sitting on my uh, at my house waiting for me to crack it open, um, takes me back to being in college and being in the low country and the beach of Charleston. And so it's like my little vacation from life. I love it. We all need that kind of resiliency self-care bit in there. For sure, for sure. Uh, well, do you have any stray observations or final thoughts about what you would like to share with the, the podcast audience? Well, I think... Um, we are so excited about the changes and the things that we've been able to be a part of this past year. Coming to uh, the ASCA conference in February was huge for us. We felt like we'd kind of come to the big kids' table because we're just like this little baby organization. So. We're very flattered that you think of us as the big kids. <laughs> <laughs> so we were very excited about that, and um, we were so happy when you accepted the invitation to come back to our little our little conference and and be part of what we're doing and be part of our growth and watch us as we go so and we also um i so appreciate the opportunities to get some mentorship from the leadership of um, the asca as we are navigating our growth because our growth is starting to burst and we are trying to keep keep up with all of that yeah we have lots of great ideas always happy to share the lessons learned and where we've stumbled and where we've succeeded because i think we've had a little of everything um as we've grown from 25 people around a pool in Florida to um, almost a thousand people now um, at our last annual conference. So Amazing. Uh, the growth process and you know is intense, and I think it it brings good problems. Like there's too many registrants for our space, kind of thing. Right, right, yeah. Um, so if folks would like to reach out to you or join HECMA, how can they reach you? Okay, so our website is www.hecma.org. H-E-C-M-A.org. Um, membership is very reasonable at this point. Our cost is $50 for an annual membership. Um, and um, we are in the process of developing a partnership or uh, associate membership for folks that aren't practitioners of case management, but maybe you want to learn some about it and giving some opportunities for that. Um, I can be reached at leadership at HECMA.org. We were such a social work entity when we started. I just didn't feel like I could be president at HECMA.org. That seems too 
hierarchical. <laughs> so <laughs> it's leadership at HECMA.org, which I think speaks a little bit to how our, how we see ourselves. It's more roundtable-y for sure. Yes, it's definitely that vibe. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, JJ, for sharing your viewpoint with us. Um, if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can tweet us at ASCA Podcast, or you can email us at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's ascapodcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at gmail.com. Thanks so much, JJ. Thank you. Bye-bye. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, we welcome Dr. Ryan Holmes. Ryan Holmes is a past president of ASCA and also the Dean of Students at the University of Miami. I hope you'll come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com.